Wednesday, we've been looking at the Theophanies in the Old Testament. Um, but we ran out of days, and one was left undealt with, and that is the one of which we have read this morning, and are going to seek to deal with it uh, on this occasion. I'm going to try to bring out from this theophany, appearance of God to Abraham, lessons which help us understand the way Christ deals with us, that God deals with us in and through Christ. Because here is Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, uh, dealing with Abraham. And I think there are some very instructive lessons here because God does not change. Christ does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the way in which he, he graciously uh, dealt with Abraham is the same way in which he will graciously deal with us as we put our trust in him. So I've got three headings. The first is that God keeps his promises. The second, God reveals his purposes. And thirdly, God answers our prayer. Promises, purposes, and prayer. And the way God deals with us in connection with these things. Now, of course, in this particular uh, theophany, the promise is unmistakable. It is the promise made to Abraham that he would have descendants, that there would be a great nation, and that in that nation or through that nation, all the nations and peoples of the earth would be blessed. Um, uh, we have it um, at the beginning of chapter 12 of Genesis. There we read, now the Lord said to Abraham, his name was changed from Abram to Abraham, and he was originally Abram. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It was of course a reference to the ultimate seed or descendant of Abraham according to the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ incarnate, the second person of the triune God who came into this world uh, in order to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, there this, this promise was made to Abraham when he lived in the city of Ur of the Chaldees. And the religion there was moon worship. And God just out of the blue, appeared to Abraham. We don't know whether that was 
visibly or whether it was in Abraham's thoughts and mind, and made these three promises that Abraham uh, would be the father of a great nation, that they would occupy a promised land, and thirdly, that they would, uh, through them, all the families of the world would be blessed. Now, there was a problem. The problem was that Sarah, Abraham's wife, was barren. She couldn't have children. And uh, nevertheless, this promise was made, which necessitated that Abraham should have children. And that promise was repeated again and again and again. The promise was given to Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, Abraham, as a consequence of this, uh, set out, moved from Ur, uh, and, and arrived in a place called Haran in Syria. And there they stayed for an indeterminate period of time. We're not told how long they lived in Haran, certainly several years, I think. We are then told that Abraham, or Abraham, left Haran to go to Canaan, which is where God had called him to go in the first place. Now, Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran. We don't know how long he lived in Haran. We don't know how long ago the promise of Genesis 12 verse 1 was made to him. But then it was, it was another, it was 24 years before a child was born to Abraham and Sarah after he left Haran. So how long it was since the promise of chapter 12 verse 1 was made, we just don't know, but it, it couldn't have been less than 30 years. And that promise was repeated again and again. Um, it's given at the beginning of chapter 12, it was repeated at the end of chapter 13, it was restated twice in chapter 15, and restated twice again in chapter 17. And that brings us to the chapter that we read, where the Lord comes for the seventh time to Abraham and Sarah to say, look, you're going to have a child. Abraham was 99 years old. Oh, we don't know exactly how old Sarah was, but she was, she was younger than Abraham, but not all that much. And throughout that time, we are told that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That doesn't mean that his, his belief didn't waver. There are a number of times when he complained to God, well, look, how is this going to happen? How are you going to keep your promise? Because... Sarah can't have a child. And there was the episode, of course, where Sarah gave her maid to Abraham as a second wife. And she did bear a child, Ishmael. And Abraham said, oh, well, this is great. But Ishmael is going to be my, my seed. 
And God said, no, no, no. I'm not having Ishmael. It's going to be somebody born to your wife, Sarah. No wonder she laughed. I think that was a, probably an internal laugh when in uh, chapter 18, these visitors, uh, and one of them said, uh, within the year, in about a year's time, she's going to have a baby, a son. He's talking nonsense. That's what she thinks. It's, it's just, just ridiculous. But of course it came true. Now, you're going to ask two questions. You should be asking two questions of me. The first is, why did God keep Abraham waiting so long, 30 years, before he fulfilled the promise. And the second question is, what's it got to do with me? Well, I want to answer those two questions. Why did God keep Abraham waiting? And Sarah, of course, all those years. Well, I think there are two answers. The first is that it was essential that the birth of Abraham's son should be miraculous. Completely inexplicable, that is, by a natural process. Sarah just could not have a child at that age. But she got, she had one. And that is the first thing, because Abraham was going to become a Abraham having his son born to him miraculously was going to become a picture of the way Christ, his ultimate descendant, would be born miraculously into this world. But I think uh, an even more reason is given us in Romans chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul is... Uh, um, talking about Abraham, using Abraham as a, as a picture. Though, if you'd like to turn to Romans 4 um, and start reading at verse 13, <clears throat> talking about the promise made to Abraham. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law, the law of Moses that is, uh, if it is they who are the heirs, then faith is, is nullified, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, because you can't keep it. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. And then uh, verse, go down to verse 20. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. 
That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. So, you see, that, that promise wasn't for Abraham only. It was for us. Because Abraham became the archetype of justification by faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham attained righteousness by faith, by trusting in the promise of God. And Paul is using that as a powerful argument to show that obedience to the law of Moses with all its rituals and and requirements uh, is, is not a means by which we obtain salvation. We can't because we can never do it perfectly. We have to have a righteousness which is not our own. That, of course, is the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us. It is put to our account as we trust and believe in the promise of God. The promise is that if we if we do trust in the atoning work of Christ, we shall be saved. Okay. I think that answers both questions. Why did God keep Abraham so long? In order to test his faith and, and, and delineate him as the, the ultimate uh, or original believer in Christ, the one who believed in Christ. And incidentally, John, in his gospel, says that Abraham saw the day of Christ. He knew that was coming. So then, there we have it, the fact that God keeps his promises. But you say, well, that was just one particular promise. One special promise doesn't apply to us in any way. Uh, well, that is true, of course. But in the New Testament, uh, we read in, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we read that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. You see, God has made us many promises. Uh, we've recently, with Chris, been looking at the opening verses of 2 Peter chapter 1, and let me read verses 3 and 4 uh, from that place. His, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which, <clears throat> by knowing Christ, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of 
lust or sinful desire. You see, we have exceeding great and precious promises. The Bible is full of them. And the believer is able to recognize those promises and to take hold of them, to make them his own, her own. And all those promises of God are, yes and amen, God keeps his promises. Man cannot keep his promises. <coughs> I won't embarrass you by asking you to put your hand up if you've ever broken a promise. Wouldn't be any point because we'd all put our hands up. But God doesn't break his promise. We, we break our promises because, first of all, we might not mean them in the first place. Secondly, uh, because we might forget that we made the promise. And thirdly, uh, because we were prevented by circumstances beyond our control uh, from keeping the promise. There are different reasons uh, we forget or fail to keep promises. I don't know how many of you know the old children's rhyme. Um, old Mrs. Hubbard went to the cupboard to give her poor dog a bone. When she got there, the cupboard was bare, and so the poor dog had none. Well, nursery rhymes sometimes contain real truth. I'm sure Mrs. Hubbard, if she'd actually existed, had every intention of uh, giving the dog a bone, probably would have said to the dog, oh, I'll promise you a bone. But she didn't have the resources to keep that promise. And, and, and that is true so often of us. We, we make promises in, in all sincerity, but then we discover we don't have the resources to keep those promises. But you see, God has infinite resources. God never forgets. God always means what he says. And so we have in God a perfect promiser, one whose promises are always fulfilled. And that is the first lesson I think we learn. The other two lessons uh, I think will take less time. The second lesson is that God revealed his purpose to Abraham in verse, uh, verse 17. The Lord said, and that means he said to himself, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and so on. The Lord says to himself, I'm, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and shall I keep Abraham in the dark until it happens? No. He says, I can't do that. I, I, I must tell him. I must reveal my purposes. Why? Because of the promises he's made. The second point is, is linked to the first point. And so he tells Abraham what's going to happen. Uh, he tells Abraham uh, that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he knows Abraham has a vested interest in the city of Sodom because Abraham's nephew, Lot, 
is living there with his family. God reveals his purposes. He revealed his purposes here to Abraham concerning the fate that was about to fall upon uh, the city of Sodom, the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah. And again, you might say, well, what's that got to do with us? How does that affect us? Well, uh, the answer is, it does affect us. Uh, turn to John, John's Gospel, chapter 15. And we have something rather interesting stated there. The Lord Jesus Christ is talking to his disciples. And in verse 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, it is true, of course, he was speaking to his, uh, his apostles, a small group, but I think that uh, we must uh, and should extrapolate that to, to all believers. God does not call us servants who don't know what he's up to, don't know what he's planning, don't know what he intends to do. He calls us his friends. In fact, it goes beyond that, of course. He calls the believer his children because we have been born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and God isn't going to conceal from us what his plans are, what his purposes are. All the purposes of God are known to us because they are revealed to us in Scripture. In fact, when the Lord Jesus was talking to his disciples here, <clears throat> he hadn't yet told them everything he was going to tell them. Because he says in, in chapter 16, uh, there are yet many things I have to tell you, but you cannot bear them yet. But when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will reveal all things to you. And those things we have written loud and clear in the New Testament. For Jesus continued, he, the Holy Spirit, he, the Spirit of truth, will take of the things of mine and show them to you. God has revealed his purposes to us. And as we study the scripture and read the scripture and hear the scripture expounded, as we seek to understand the scriptures, each one of us individually, then we begin to see what are the purposes of God. Uh, well, you might say, um, nothing in the Bible tells me what color car I should choose or where I should go for my holiday. But God isn't revealing everything. <laughs> but he, he is, you know, because there are principles. There are principles set out in the New Testament that we can apply to almost every decision we make. 
almost every plan uh, we make for the future. The Bible has, has an enormous amount of practical instruction showing us what the purpose of God is and how we may interpret that purpose in our own particular experience. Right, then I'll leave it at that. God keeps his promises and God reveals his purposes. And then finally, of course, God answers our prayer. Because he had revealed his purpose of destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, he sets Abraham praying. Now, if he hadn't revealed his purpose, then Abraham would not have prayed the prayers that he did. And we read about them. And Abraham says, well, look, you're the judge of all the earth. You've got to do right. You can't possibly destroy the city if in doing so, you will kill perhaps 50 righteous people. And God says, okay, I'll spare the city for the sake of 50 righteous people. And then Abraham goes on. Well, perhaps there'll only be 45 righteous people. What about that? Or there'll only be 30. What about that? Or there'll only be 20. What about that? And every time God patiently replies, for the sake of 30, 20 righteous people, I will not destroy the city. And then, of course, his final request is, is Lord, what about 10 righteous people? Now, that is a, is a meaningful number because it probably was the number of people that Abraham thought of as being in Lot's family. Of course, Lot only had two daughters and a wife, so it's only four. But the, the, the two daughters were uh, engaged to, it says they were married, but they did things differently in those days. They were engaged to, to people in the city, so that brings the number up to six. And then there were relatives of these people to whom they were engaged and so on. So, so Abraham probably thought, well, <laughs> there may be 10 in Lot and his, his close family who are righteous. And God says, okay, for 10, for the sake of 10 righteous people, I will spare the city. But God didn't spare the city, did he? But he did answer Abraham's prayer in a way that Abraham hasn't asked the prayer because Abraham was really concerned about Lot and his family. And God delivered him and his immediate family, his wife and his two daughters, from the destruction. The two angels who, who went on ahead, they had to, had to drag Abraham and his family out of the city. They had to take them by the hand and, and physically drag them out of the city, set them in a safe place. And then, of course, they warned them, don't look back. Don't look back. And then when... 
the must have been some kind of volcanic eruption, I think, with sulfur being one of the things thrown out uh, through the uh, air, or perhaps literal salt, as we know it, because it was a, a basin where uh, salt deposits existed. And that's why if we look back, and we told she was turned into a pillar of salt, which sounds a bit, bit uh, bizarre, until you realize that great globs of molten salt were probably being thrown into the air and sulfur and coming down. So in the end, it was only Lot and his two daughters who actually escaped the destruction. But, see, God, but in doing so, he was going to answer Abraham's unuttered prayer. Please deliver my nephew Lot from this destruction. And you know, God answers our prayer. He always hears the prayer of those who believe in him. My last scripture reference is in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 7 to 11. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus is preaching his Sermon on the Mount and he says to his disciples, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him. God always answers the prayer of his children. But as in uh, Abraham's case, doesn't necessarily answer them in the way that we think, in the way that we ask, in the way that we plan. We can't plan what God will do <clears throat> but he will hear our prayer. And our prayers will be answered in one way or another. And that is the confidence <clears throat> that the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to have. The confidence he wants those who trust in him to exercise on a daily basis. Uh, we had a special prayer meeting um, <clears throat> when we heard that Abigail had gone into hospital and was, as Chris said, at a turning point. We had a prayer meeting here at the church and others joined us on Zoom. The next day, Chris was able to email and say that for the last 18 hours, Abigail had been improving. That 18 hours goes back approximately at least 
to the beginning of our prayer meeting. Certainly to the planning of our prayer meeting. God answers our prayers. Sometimes in spectacular ways. I could tell you spectacular stories from my own experience. But most of the answers to prayer are not that remarkable. They're not that special. But they're always there. In some form or other, God always answers our prayer. God keeps his promises. God reveals his purposes. And God answers our prayer. 